You're listening to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We hope this message brings you encouragement and helps to build your faith in Jesus. We're glad you're here to listen to this message from Pastor Paul. Well, so far in the book of Esther, we have seen a couple of great themes taking place. First of all, early in the book, we saw a lot of sin. We see King Xerxes, the great Persian king, and Haman, his right-hand man, and they are sinful. Xerxes is a drunken, perverted, irresponsible man who delegates a lot of his authority to Haman, who is a godless, violent, proud man, a lot of sin. And then the storyline shifts to suffering. Esther is married to a horrible man, the king who sometimes doesn't see her, see her for up to 30 days because he's so busy with the harem. And he's worshipped like a god, and he is a drunken power monger. So she's suffering. And then there's Mordecai, her adoptive father, who is in a way complicit because he doesn't fight against her marriage to this godless king But he's also worried his suffering is that he's trying to keep an eye on this adoptive daughter who's in a dangerous situation. What's more is that Haman, this second in command, has sent out a decree to murder all of God's people. The death date has been set. The clock is ticking. And so all of God's people are suffering emotionally and they're about to suffer physically. And then today in Esther 8, we get to another theme. It focuses on stewardship. I know what you're thinking. He finally got around to talking about money. Stewardship. What to do with the things that God has entrusted to us. Yes, money, but so much more than that. What other things has God entrusted to us? Time, spiritual gifts, our children. Our influence. In the case of Esther and Mordecai, what are they going to do with the power they now have? What are they going to do with the riches they now have? How are they going to steward their newfound level of authority and influence? What are they going to do? Because Haman, in a great reversal that we saw last time in chapter 7, he had this enormous pole erected in his yard on which he was going to impale Mordecai. And in this great reversal, Haman is the one who is crucified and put to death. And then Mordecai, you'll see today, is going to take over Haman's position. But the problem is the death sentence still lingers for all of God's people. Mordecai's life has been spared. But the death sentence on all of God's people still remains because of this thing called the law of the Medes and Persians. What that law dictated was any time a king made a decree, it was irreversible. So even though Haman has died, the death sentence remains. Now, what we're going to do is look at three questions in the chapter 8 of Esther. And the first question is this, what makes Mordecai and Esther such great leaders? We'll see here that God gifts both men and women with 
leadership abilities, and he brings them into positions of influence and power. So here's how chapter 8 opens. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed for Haman, and presented it to Mordecai, and Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. The first thing that makes them great leaders is their acceptance and exercising of authority. Haman was in authority. And in this great reversal, Haman is crucified. And we see here Mordecai taking Haman's position of power and authority. Haman was like the vice president. He was second in command. He had all of this great wealth. And now not only does Haman die, but all of his estate is turned over to Mordecai. So Mordecai just went from powerless to powerful, from working some low-level job at the city gate to being vice president all in one day. It just shows the favor and grace of God at work in Mordecai's life. And importantly, the story is told that he has given the signet ring of the king. That ring is exceedingly important. In, in our day, it's kind of like having a power of attorney, the legal power of attorney. If someone is sick or elderly or struggling or dying, they will give the power of attorney to someone that they trust to handle their affairs and their estate. And so that person with the legal power of authority now has the authority to execute on behalf of this other person. Giving the signet ring to Mordecai was giving him the legal authority of the king. King Xerxes, sec the, the most powerful man on earth. Now Mordecai is second most powerful. And we see here Esther and Mordecai accept their position of authority. And the question is, what authority do we have? I mean, think about the authority that you have. Almost every single one of us has some kind of authority. If you're a parent, you definitely have authority. If you're a teacher or a coach or a business leader or, or a ministry leader. And here's what God wants you to do with that authority. Humbly accept it. That's what they do. Because if you're humble, you love God, you love people, and you work as best you can in the grace of God, it will turn out okay. Some of you have resisted the positions of authority and leadership that God has opened to you. Maybe God wants you to assume those positions because it's not about you and your fear of failure. It's about God using you. Maybe it's even to be in a position to help others, to have an opportunity to bring aid to somebody else. And sometimes the people who feel least qualified are actually the most qualified because they have the first prerequisite, which is humility. So number one, what makes Mordecai and Esther great leaders? They accept their authority. The second thing that makes them great leaders is that we see their passion. Here's how the story continues. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. 
She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. And the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. How can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? You see her passion. Esther up to this point has not been an emotional woman, at least not revealed in the story through the first seven chapters. She doesn't cry a lot. She doesn't fall at people's feet begging for things. But here, Esther, at the right time, for the right reasons, is very passionate in the right way. She throws herself at the king's feet, like, wow, she's not done that before, so this must be urgent, this must be important. What is it that you're passionate about? She's very passionate about God's people. Look, her life is safe. She's the queen. She's rich, she's powerful, she's famous, she's safe. Why is she now emotional? Well, she's not concerned for herself. She concerns herself with God's people. You see, there are only two things that are going to spend eternity together in the heavenly kingdom. God and his people. That's it. All the stuff we have, we're not going to take it. All the things we've accomplished, they'll come to an end. All the pursuits we're striving toward, they will cease. The Lord and his people are together forever. So you know what really matters? People. Things are fine, but people really matter. What do you have a passion for? What are you excited about? What is it when you speak of it, your, your voice kind of changes, your eyes open wide, and your tone is obvious. Well, truth be told, some people are excited about sin. Some people are excited about temporary things. She gets very excited about the well-being of God's people, and that's the mark of a great leader. Well, there's more to the story. Next verses. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I've given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. She's very passionate. She's saying, what about the people, our people, God's people? And the king's like, what else do you want? I crucified Haman in his yard. I gave all of his wealth to Mordecai. He's now rich. I put him in a position of vice president. You're the queen. You guys are now powerful and rich and famous and safe. 
what else do you want? And Esther says, it's not about me. It's about the people. They are not safe. They are not blessed. They are in danger. There's still a curse on them. Second question. Were Mordecai and Esther justified in seeking the death of others? This will be an emotional shift. We went from love and hugs to murder women and children. By way of prefacing this next section, have you ever had a non-Christian family member, friend, coworker, neighbor, college professor, uh, mock the Bible, critique it and God saying, it's a horrible book. God tells his people to kill women and children. It sanctions genocide. It's filled with racism and sexism and nationalism. It's an outdated book, that Bible that you profess to believe in. Or maybe you're a new Christian or think back to when you were and you're like, I don't know. Jesus loves me. I'm forgiven. Sounds good. So I signed up and then I got a Bible and I started reading the Old Testament. Oh my there's some complicated stories in there. I, I must have missed kill them. So you kind of rock back on your heels and you're thinking, that's tough. I, I don't know what to do with that. We sort of arrive at one of those sections today. It's not as blatant as other passages in the Old Testament. But what do you do when you come to passages like that? Well, it seems like there are a couple of options. You can ignore it. You can say, I, I don't know, I just ignore those parts. You can change them. I'm sure that we can find a scholar with more degrees than a thermometer who can interpret it in a different way that might not be quite as accurate, but hey, it sounds better to us. The third option is you can apologize for God. Well, you know, that was the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. Those were kind of like God's middle school years. Those weren't his best years. But I can guarantee you, he's gotten a lot better since then. And then there's one final option. We just say, God said what he said. God did what he did. We are to study and learn. So my job is to teach. And we all need to hear and pray and study and consider and kick it around and do additional homework. But before we judge God, let's listen to him. At once, the royal secretaries were summoned on the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. Now, this is like their port postal system. These were the best horses. This was an urgent message, an important message. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law 
every province, made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews could be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers, riding the royal horses, went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. That's the capital of the Persian Empire. So let me explain. Haman previously had sent forth a decree. On a particular day, all of God's people will be killed, men, women, and children, and all of their goods plundered. So the, so the Persians are preparing to attack all of the Jewish people that live in the Persian Empire, upwards of 15 million Jews. The Persians were getting their weapons and their battle plans together. And here's the tragic part of it all, God's people know it's coming. It was announced well in advance. They had 11 months of knowing that this certain date, what was going to happen to them. It just shows the utter depravity of the human heart that's unrestrained. Part of the goal and and function of law according to the Lord is to restrain evil. We are all sinners by choice and by nature. And this is the human heart unleashed in its full capacity of evil. So if you ever thought, you know, I really don't think those people were that bad. Well, this is kind of like Nazi Germany. The Jewish people were targeted for genocide and their goods plundered to fuel the war machine of their enemy. It's like that. This didn't happen just once. It happens over and over. It's happening today in places like Syria and Egypt and Iran and Turkey where the enemy of God's people is rising up to harm Christians, to burn down churches, to threaten violence, to put into place Sharia law so that believers can be arrested for evangelism, or serving in Jesus' name. Persecution and martyrdom continue against God's people. This death sentence was issued, and because it is issued with the signet ring of the king at that time on the finger of Haman, it is irreversible. But now Mordecai and Esther, even though they can't reverse that decree... They can't reverse that decision. They can send forth another one. Again, with the signet ring of the king, this time on the finger of Mordecai, that allows all God's people to defend themselves against their attackers. So this wasn't so much about God saying, hey, you people, go and kill all Persians. He's giving his people the right to defend themselves in case there are those who disobey that law and come and attack them. And the final question, why were Esther and Mordecai successful missionaries? Before we read this last paragraph of chapter 8, let me say this. Benton Heights Presbyterian, our church, seeks to be a missional church. By that, it means that we strive to bring the justice, love, mercy, and truth of God into our culture. And so that folks who don't know God will come to know the God of the Bible. 
That's what a missionary does. And that's what a missional church does. Sometimes a missionary is intentionally sent by God's people. So Chris and Megan Vengala and Cam and Kari Spear, all members of our congregation were in some way sent by this church to Asheville with YWAM where their mission is to reach non-believers for Christ Jesus. In two weeks, Ben and Rochelle Davis are going to be used of God in another part of the world through, partly through assistance from our church. We're going to share more about that next week and pray them on their journey. But that's one way missionary missions is done. Sometimes the way missions is done in the providence of God, his people are already living in largely non-Christian places. Sometimes with as few as 1% to 3% of the population being Christian in places like India and the Middle East, where those believers can live for the kingdom and show others what our God is all about. Esther and Mordecai. Remember, they should have been in Jerusalem. They, they should have gone back. Their, their family, their, their lineage should have traveled back to Jerusalem when that was offered. For whatever reason, their family didn't. They stayed where they were. They should not have been in Susa. They were supposed to be with God's people, near God's presence, in the temple, and yet they were living far away. Then, God comes to be with them and use them just as he does with us. Some of you may be in places that you should not be physically. Some of you may be in places that you should not be relationally. But God can meet you there. And he can use you if you will repent and grow as a missionary seeking out others to meet the God of the Bible and have life change. One way to examine our missions is to look at the story of Esther and Mordecai. They are God's people in a pagan place. They are living in a pagan culture. Now, at first, they didn't reveal their identity, that they worshiped the one true God. They concealed that for a long time. And then they, they come out and identify themselves as God's people. Now, get this. They don't do that as clergy. They do it as politicians. And some of you will live out the faith as business leaders and workers, and professors, and medical personnel, and retirees. And so we see how Esther and Mordecai behave as missionaries in their culture. Let's just say they aren't exactly like Daniel, who seemed to be godly through and through, I mean, from beginning to end. Esther and Mordecai, they start off maybe like many of us, a little compromised, a bit worldly, not super impressive, but in the grace of God, they grow and mature and they become very gifted, utilized, mature missionaries. And here's how it happened. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold and a purple robe of linen. Mordecai got a wardrobe upgrade. He got to go shopping. 
And I guarantee you, he had a chariot with rims and stacks on it. I mean, this guy was living large. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. So now even the capital city shouted and rejoiced. Mordecai is like a rock star, a war hero. Everybody knows him. Here are the two most famous believers in the vast Persian empire. Esther and Mordecai. They've gone from nobody to somebody, from poor to rich to unknown to well-known. Everything has changed for them. Continues, for the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honor. In every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came, there was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating. And many people of other nationalities became Jews because a fear of the Jews had seized them. Many other people identified themselves with the Jews. Now, some may have done so on a purely cultural level. Oh, they've got a Jewish vice president and a Jewish queen, and they're allowed to attack all of their enemies. Hey, yay, Jews. It may have been solely for cultural reasons and not at all spiritual. But I have to believe that at least some got converted that they started worshiping the God of Esther and Mordecai. Maybe the people said things like, tell us about your God who saved you. Tell us about your God who changed your character because I see change in you. Tell us about your God that has you treat us in a way that the king doesn't. He uses us. You love us. Tell us about this God. We want to know more. I've often said that the greatest compliment that a believer could receive is to have someone outside the faith look at us and say, I want what you've got. And that gives us then the opportunity to share about the God who makes us the way we are. Because of his saving grace, and love and mercy, there is a freedom that cannot be explained apart from Him at work in your life. We hope you enjoyed the message. You can connect with us on Instagram, Facebook, our website, bhprez.org, and subscribe to our YouTube channel to stay up to date on all our latest content.